what the Buddha taught about death. This is a summary from a class that I have done in the past on death. The Buddha taught that death is inevitable, even for the holy and enlightened. Everyone has to die. Our lifespan is continually decreasing. And the amount of time that we can spend in our life to develop our heart-mind is quite limited. He taught the uncertainty of the time of death, that human life expectancy is uncertain. There are so many causes of death, and the human body is so fragile. So a virus, eating the wrong thing, a drunk driver, and so on. He taught that only spiritual practice can help us at the time of death. Our possessions and our enjoyments can't help. Our loved ones can't help. Our own body can't help. And he taught that fear of death is good. It spurs you not to waste life and to undertake spiritual practice. So let's continue with the story of the Buddha's own death journey, journey to death, last journey, I calculated that the Buddha walked on this last journey about 190 to 200 miles at age 80 when he was sick. So as the Buddha departs the Vaishali, he turns around and says to Ananda, this is the last time that Tathagata will look on Vaishali. So he turns around and recognizes, this is the last time I will see this city, which he has visited many times, and where the um, mango grove is that we talked about, I talked about a few days ago. And then they go on through several towns where the Buddha preaches again. Everywhere he goes, he's working, he's teaching. He teaches on the wisdom that can emerge from a concentrated mind when it's fully supported by, by maintaining the precepts. So two of the, so three of the three-legged stool. So precepts, concentration, samadhi, and wisdom that arises out of a mind of samadhi, or from deep, the mind that taps into prajnaparamita, wisdom beyond wisdom. They arrive at Pava, where they all stay in a mango grove, owned by a man named Kunda, who was a metal worker. And he was very inspired by the Buddha's teaching, so he invited the Buddha and his community to a meal. And typical of a festival kind of meal, an offering by a wealthy person, there are many foods, including a food called Sukhara Madhava. And scholars aren't certain whether this Sukhara Madhava was pork, or mushrooms. But when the Buddha uh, sees this food, he tells Kunda, just serve this to me, and don't serve it to anyone else. You can serve all the rest of the food to anyone else in the assembly. And he tells Kunda, uh, when I've taken my portion and eaten it, you need to bury the rest of this food. So we don't know if it was um, pork that could have had, you know, trichinosis or probably something worse than that because the Buddha got sick right away 
Maybe poison mushrooms are mixed in with the mushrooms, we don't know. So then, uh, soon after the Blessed One had eaten the meal provided by Kunda the metal worker, a dire sickness fell upon him, even dysentery, and he suffered sharp and deadly pains. But the Blessed One endured them mindfully, clearly comprehending and unperturbed, which is potent. If we can face pain, enter pain, work with pain, which is what our practice helps us to do, intense discomfort, and find that it is in a way compounded, and there is space between the sensations. The sensations come and go. It's not solid. This is relieves a lot of the anxiety about dying. And then we did the meditation on the anxiety about leaving loved ones after you die. And then, of course, every time we sit along retreat, we work with fear of pain. Then the Buddha tells Ananda that they're going to go on to Kusanagara, where he knows he'll die. And part of the way there, he steps off of the road and goes under a tree and asks Ananda, Please fold my upper robe in four, Ananda, and lay it down. I am weary and want to rest a while. So that would be the equivalent of our okesa, folded in four to be a kind of cushion, and probably put down on a mat. I am weary and I want to rest a while. So be it, Lord. And the Venerable Ananda folded the robe in four and laid it down. And the Blessed One sat down on the seat prepared for him and said to Venerable Ananda, Please bring me some water, Ananda. I am thirsty and want to drink. And the Venerable Ananda answered the Blessed One, But just now, Lord, a great number of carts, 500 carts, have passed over and the shallow water has been cut through by the wheels so that it flows turbid and muddy. But the the Kakutha River, Lord, is quite close by, and its waters are clear, present, pleasant, cool, and translucent. It is easily approachable and delightfully placed. There the Blessed One can quench his thirst and refresh his limbs. But the Buddha makes the same request and says, Please bring me water. I'm thirsty and I want to drink. And so it happens a third time. And the Buddha just keeps saying, please bring me water, Ananda. Then the Venerable Ananda answered, so be it, Lord. And he took the bowl and went to the stream. And the shallow water, which had been cut through by the wheel so that it flowed turbid and muddy, became clear and settled down, pure and pleasant, as the Venerable Ananda drew near. Then the Venerable Ananda thought, marvelous and most wonderful indeed is the power of the Tathagata. So he took up the water in the bowl and carried it to the Blessed One and said, Marvelous and most wonderful indeed is the power of the Tathagata. For this shallow water, which had been cut through by the wheels so that it flowed turbid and muddy, became clear and settled down, pure and pleasant as I drew near. Let now the Blessed One drink the water. Let the Happy One drink. And the Blessed One drank the water. Now remember that as he's uh, walking, towards uh, Kusinagara, he has dysentery, 
So he's probably dehydrated. Hence the request, and hence part of his fatigue. But this, of course, is um, an analogy for what? For our minds, right? It's a common analogy, a common image that we bring to what happens when we sit a retreat like this. That gradually the muddy water, the turbid waters, tangled thoughts, the emotions, the worries about the past and the future gradually settle down, settle down, settle down. And then our mind becomes clearer and clearer. And then we can really begin to drink and quench our true thirst. Then uh, he's now in the uh, the territory of the Mala clan. And a man named Pukusa of the Mala clan spoke to a certain man. This was after he'd received the Buddha's instructions uh, and teaching, because the Buddha's teaching wherever he goes. And so Pukusa was so impressed with what the Buddha taught that he spoke to a certain man saying, Bring me at once, friend, two sets of golden-hued robes burnished and ready for wear. And the man answered him, So be it, sir. And when the robes were brought, Pukusa of the Mala clan offered them to the Blessed One, saying, May the Blessed One, O Lord, out of compassion, accept this from me. And the Blessed One said, Robe me then in one, Pukusa, and in the other robe, Ananda. So both the Buddha and Ananda now take on these golden robes. And for special occasions and ceremonies, you may notice that we wear Uh, The ordained, who are transmitted teachers, wear gold. So we wear golden rocks who are a golden robe. And this is actually very, very close to the robes that the Thai forest monks wear, sewn in the traditional way. They even have a, a tie up here. Very, very close. So this is even wonderful that this has, this custom has persisted for 2,560 years. Ananda notices then that the Buddha's skin has become clear and radiant, brighter than the golden robe. That's, that's how he notices it, because the robe was so shiny, and then he realizes the Buddha's skin is shinier than the robe. And this is why the Buddha is often shown as golden in statues or in paintings. This translucent radiance has also been observed by hospice nurses or people who are sitting with someone who's dying. And we have that happening right now in our Sangha, so um, we added to the chant list a few days ago Christina and Mike Stanley. Uh, They live in Corvallis now, and they're part of the Sangha there, Sangha Jewel Temple. And we saw them just a few weeks ago. And um, I think the day before yesterday, Mike had a stroke. And uh, his wife is the next nurse, so she knew exactly what was happening. And he got emergency treatment, and he was transferred then up to Providence Hospital in Portland. And she's there now with her daughters and family um, because he's just been taken off of life support because this, this is a bleeding stroke. And, 
the bleeding continued and uh, there was no chance of recovery. So Hogan just talked to her and they're all at the bedside and Hogan said that her practice really shows through that she's quite calm and made the decision quite easily and clearly that it was not uh, worthwhile to pr prolong uh, life that wasn't his life at all. And he was a musician. Some of you may have remembered he came up and played a little accordion and other instruments. So they're playing the music that he enjoyed. So Ananda notices that the Buddha's skin has been become clear and uh, shining. And the Buddha, he, me he mentions it to the Buddha, and the Buddha tells him there are two occasions on which the skin of the Tathagata becomes clear and radiant. On the night of enlightenment, so which is 40-some years earlier, and the night when the Buddha passes away with no remainders. So no physical remainders. The rest has gone in his enlightenment. And today, the Buddha says, in Kusinagara, the last watch of the night, in the Sala Grove, I will pass away. So the Buddha is saying, very soon, today, tonight, I will pass away. So on the way to Kusinagara, they, the whole community comes to a river where the Buddha drinks and bathes. His bodily strength is obviously waning, and he again asks Ananda to fold his upper robe in four so he can rest lying on his right side, like the Buddha on the altar. And as I mentioned, that's how they often uh, rested at night, meditated while resting the body. That's called the lion's posture. Um, and it's a little uncomfortable for us, just like sitting cross-legged is uncomfortable for us when we first do it. But you can try it. So he then tells Ananda, make sure that no one blames Kunda for causing my death, saying that the most virtuous offering of food are those given to the Buddha just before his enlightenment, which would have been the rice milk that the young woman offered him when he had been starving almost to death, uh, on purpose, thinking that if he starved the body, he could reach enlightenment faster, and then the offering before his parinirvana. And when they arrive at the grove of the solid trees, Ananda prepares a bed for the Buddha between two solid trees, and the Buddha again lies down on his right side with one foot resting on the other, like in the statue, mindful and fully comprehending. So his mind is clear, but his body is wearing out. The solid tree is then burst into bloom out of season, and the blossoms rain down, and fragrant sandalwood power rain down, rains down from the heavens upon the Buddha. And heavenly music is heard. And then there's some very cute little moments in the story. So the Buddha looks up and sees one of his disciples standing in front of him uh, because people are gathering to be there in the Buddha's last moments. And he says to this disciple, please move aside. And they ask why. He says, well, there are tens and thousands of invisible deities here. And uh, they can't see. They're complaining that they can't see. <laughs> and Ananda asks, what kind of deities? <laughs> And the Buddha says, 
while some of them are earthly-minded, and they're weeping with disheveled hair, arms in the air, flinging themselves on the ground and rolling from side to side, crying over and over, too soon has the Blessed One come to his parinirvana. So it may seem like a quiet scene, but the Buddha can see and hear all this commotion. But then he says, also there are those deities who are free from passion, mindful and comprehending, and they're reflecting in this way, so he can hear even their thoughts. Impermanent are all compounded things. How could this be otherwise? Then the fact that the Buddha is actually dying begins to penetrate, and Ananda asks the Buddha, how can we remember you? So that fear that we'll forget someone after they've died. And the Buddha says, people can do pilgrimage to the places where I was born, where I was enlightened, where I taught, and where I died. So now you know where that verse comes from in our meal chant. And that's the pilgrimage that many people do when they, Buddhists do, when they go to India. They go to those sites. Then Ananda asked the Buddha how to take care of his body after he dies. And the Buddha gives him instructions about wrapping it in many layers of cloth, many, many, they say hundreds. But hundreds, as I mentioned the other day, hundreds is a way that they talk about many. And then placing it in an iron oil vessel. So it doesn't say if it contains oil. I would imagine it does. And then burning it on a pyre. And then he says, and you you can build a stupa here where I die where I'm cremated. So Ananda at that point is overcome with grief and goes back to the vihara and leans against the doorpost and weeps. And some of the scrolls of the Buddha's Parinirvana show Ananda in the background, in the, in the building, weeping. And he's distressed that he hasn't come to enlightenment yet, and now his teacher is passing away. So hearing a few days ago that Harada Roshi has had some significant heart problems recently, then you want a last visit. And then you don't want to forget what they taught you. So you try to have them live in your heart. And Maizumi Roshi used to go away to Japan for periods of time, a month or more, I would imagine doing sanzen with him. So I would imagine going into the sanzen room and sitting down and asking him a question. And he was very wise. (laughs) Which tells you something about the inner teacher. (laughs) So the Buddha recognizes that Ananda has disappeared and he sends another monk to get Ananda and bring him. And then he says, enough, Ananda. Do not grieve, do not lament. Haven't I taught you from the very beginning that with all that is dear and beloved, there must be change and separation? You can't say about something that is compounded and therefore subject to dissolution, may it not dissolve. There is no such possibility. Now for a long time, Ananda, you have served the Tathagata with loving kindness and thought, word and deed, graciously, pleasantly, with a whole heart and beyond measure, Great good you have gathered, Ananda. 
Now put forth energy and soon you too will be free. So he's predicting that for Nanda, that he will, if he continues to practice earnestly, he will awaken. And that did happen. It took several years, actually, and another kind of crisis where the Nanda wasn't going to be let into a meeting uh, where they were pulling together uh, a compilation of the Buddhist teachings. And of course, Ananda was the one who had memorized them all. So at that point, that night before the meeting began, he became awakened. So then the Buddha tells Ananda to let the townspeople in Mala know that the Buddha is dying in Kusinagara, in the kingdom of Mala. And huge crowds of men and women and children all come, throwing themselves on the ground. And Ananda is kept very busy. He becomes an usher, dividing them into groups and announcing their families and their clans as they come to see the Buddha for the last time. So that goes on for quite a while. And a wandering ascetic, Subhara, ambles by, curious to see the dying Buddha. And Ananda, Ananda gets totally exasperated at that point. He's like, you know, this is not your Buddha. You believe in somebody else. Just no, no. And he sends him away. But the Buddha sees that this man's mind is ripe. And he tells Ananda to bring him back and, and tells the man to ask his questions. And the, he asks questions and the Buddha responds. And Subhara is so moved by this that he asks to be ordained. And the Buddha says that he can enter as a novice on probation for four months. And he practiced diligently and eventually, as the Buddha foresaw, and eventually he became enlightened. So I foresee that all of you, if you continue to practice, every single one of you will come to know your enlightened nature. And more and more to live by it, to manifest it. Then the Buddha asked his students one last time, do you have any questions? Like we ask at the end of a Dharma talk. This is your last chance, essentially. He's saying, don't, he said, don't hesitate and regret it later. Ask now if you have a, a last question. But they were all silent, and so he spoke his very last words. I exhort you, all compounded things will vanish. Strive earnestly. And then, this is one of my favorite parts too, the Buddha sank into deep meditation, and he descended through eight different stages of meditation called the jhanas. Very, very, very deep in meditation. And then he rose up again through all of those stages to the first jhana, and then back down to the fourth jhana, and then up again and immediately passed away. And this has always intrigued me, and in pondering it, I thought, well, it's like a whale that knows it's dying, and it's deep down in the depths because that's where it's, it lives. That's its home. But then one last time, it does this joyous activity of coming up, going down, coming up, and going all the way down. And I checked with Ajahn Amaro at one point, and he said, oh yes, that's exactly the way I think of it. So just one last time, one last time going through this practice, this beloved practice, 
that he had been doing for so many years. And Ananda and Anuruddha, two of the chief disciples, spoke to the people who were around and the deities who were grieving, and, he, and they said, Enough, friends, do not grieve. The Blessed One declared that with all that is dear and beloved, there will be change and separation. So that's the words of our night chant. And the two head disciples spent the night talking with everyone about the Dharma. And then they prepared his body, as he had instructed. And for a whole seven days, they paid homage. This is including all the people from the village and all the deities and so on. First, the people paid homage with dance, songs, music, flower garlands, and perfume. So like incense. And this went on for seven days. And the invisible deities, then they said, no, you can't. They tried. The people tried to lift the Buddha's body, and they couldn't. So they said, what's going on? And then somebody who could communicate with the deity said, oh, the deities want to have their seven days. Mm-hmm. So then the deities uh, did their seven days the same. And they said, um, we're delaying until Mahakashapa comes. And no one can light the funeral pyre but Mahakashapa. So we know who Mahakashapa is when we chant the lineage. He's right after the Buddha, the Buddha's first transmitted teacher. So Mahakashapa comes and he lights the funeral pyre. And after the body was completely burned, then, typical of human beings, arguments begin among the tribes who were of the warrior class, which is the same class as the Buddha, about who would get some of the relics. And if you've ever had a beloved family member die, you know how grief can emerge as clinging and anger, aversion. So the poisons which we thought we had dealt with and the love we have at the deathbed suddenly turns to something different. So it turns to, oh, I think mom would have wanted me to have that. So then messages start coming from all of the, um, the warrior tribes. So King Ajitisattu, and we met before of Magadha, then the king of the Lichavis, then the king of the Sakyans. That was the clan the Buddha was born into. His father was a Sakya king. The Bulis, the Kholis, the Vesapitas, and the Malas. The Malas are in the area of Kusinagara. And the Malas are saying, so the Sakyans are saying, well, he was born into our clan. And the Malas are saying, well, he died in our Kusinagara. So uh, a disciple named Dona intervenes, saying that if they all promise that they will build a stupa in their kingdom, then he will divide the relics into eight. Because there are eight tribes claiming we're warrior tribes, and so we deserve to get the relics. So the, he does. He divides them equally and carefully into, into eight portions and gives them out. And then the empty urn uh, was given to Dona, the urn that had the relics in it. 
um, because he settled the argument and brought peace again. And then another clan, the Moria clan, comes late saying, hey, we're of the warrior caste too. And so they were given the ashes. So originally there were 10 stupas around India with relics and the urn and the ashes. Then later on, those were divided up even more um, by another king who felt that they should be distributed all over the kingdom. And when um, Hogan and I were in New Delhi, a number of years ago, we went to the National Museum and we went inside and we were wandering around and we saw uh, a room where there were the relics of the Buddha under, under glass in, in uh, the typical kind of multi-layered vessels, like one of crystal and so on, till you get to the one of gold, the biggest one of gold. And the relics were there. And I, I said, oh my gosh, Hogan, <laughs> these are the relics. And they had the history of when they dug them up and how they dug them up and how they felt that they were the relics of the Buddha. And then a, a, there's a, there was, of course, a, like a red rope you know, around it. So you couldn't get too close. But then a guard came up to us because he saw we were excited. And he said, are you Buddhists? And we said, yes. And he said, okay, go under the rope and you can go close. And <laughs> like, whoa. Really amazing. So if you ever go to New Delhi, go to the museum. Yeah, because there's actually a, one of the edicts of King Ashoka, the king that came later that divided the relics up, um, on a rock, just sitting there, right outside the entrance. Anybody could touch it. Amazing. So this is the end of the Parinirvana Sutta and what we know about how the Buddha died. Yesterday, Fuho spoke of the koan alive or dead. So we have to take that koan in when we hear it. Are we alive or dead? Are we alive or dead? And when are we most alive? And when are we most deadly unconscious? And I hope you've developed a better understanding of what aliveness means during this session. Maybe moments when you glimpsed what it might mean to be truly alive, to be truly present for this life. not to go unconscious. I keep reminding ourselves to be present for this precious human life. And of course, none of us are perfect at it. All of us have minds that wander. All of us go unconscious at times. But through mindfulness and mindfulness practices, and above all through sashim, we can become more and more alive. And when you're more alive, don't the things around you become more alive? Alive with colors, with beautiful forms, alive with whispers, with wisdom of their own. But there's another alive that the Buddha taught 
and all the Chan masters and Zen masters, and mystics like Hafiz and Rumi speak about, alive or dead, burned in a monk's gut for years until he finally had a breakthrough. A breakthrough, we call it the great death. And in Zen they say, if you die on the cushion, if you break through to the great death, then you will never have to die again. Meaning, your fear of death will be removed. So this monk in the koan had a breakthrough, a breakthrough like a, like a jailbreak out of the prison of the small anxious mind and into the vastness of all existence, all existence, endlessly being born and dying, being born and dying. We can watch emptiness become form. That's our first chant in the morning service. Form is emptiness, emptiness is form. We can watch that happen in our own body, sensations endlessly arising and fading away. We can watch it happen in our own mind, thoughts and memories and plans arising endlessly and fading away. It's like being deep down in the machinery that cranks out human being and then suffering human being. We can watch it in our own heart. We're irritated by somebody until we discover that they lost a baby or they're struggling with a serious illness, maybe a fatal illness, and our heart changes. We can expand our field of awareness and watch it happen everywhere. Once we become intrigued with appearing and disappearing, we can watch emptiness becoming form and returning again to emptiness. We can watch it with people like Mike Stanley, with cities, like my archaeology feed, where they find, keep finding cities that disappeared, civilizations that disappeared. We can watch it in, out in space with suns, with asteroids, with meteorites, with buildings, with trees, with galaxies, with our tea cookie treats at night with entire civilizations. We can watch what the Buddha taught. All compounded things are subject to change, death, and decay. We can watch it in our compost bin. So when we take that koan in, form is emptiness, emptiness is form, we can see it happening everywhere. Fuho mentioned relics, which are the small jewel-like remains that were found in the ashes after the Buddha was cremated and are sometimes searched for and found in the ashes of a great teacher. So I'll make sure that there are plenty of relics. My plan is to swallow some jewels, just in case. (laughs) 
And perhaps some of you were able to attend one of the relic tours. The relics tours, when relics of great Buddhist teachers were brought from um, Asia to the U.S., and they were taken around to different Dharma centers, and Dharma Rain was one of the hosts downtown. And I had no expectations. I actually had some aversion to going to see these relics because I thought it was kind of strange. Um, and But then I entered this dark meditation hall, which I'd been in you know, many times over the years, and the relics were displayed in an illuminated case in the middle of the room. And the monks were chanting, and I was just really startled because there was a palpable sacred energy permeating the room. Was that created by these little jewel relics? Was it created by the devotion of the monks and some of those attending? Was it created by the incense, the chanting? I don't know, but it was palpable. And as you go further in practice, there are more and more experiences that you receive with no no mind. You hold it in your heart as a glimpse into the great mystery. And you learn more and more to let go of the thoughts that try to categorize, demystify, take apart, name, and thus own these unusual experiences. The mind training that practice brings about includes these elements which you have been practicing during this retreat. Meditation creates space around thoughts so that we recognize them as something arising out of nothing. Meditation allows objective witnessing. Oh, a thought is arising. Is it really important or needed now? How much time out of an hour would I like to have my thoughts planning the future or reviewing the past? And how much time out of an hour would I like to be really present? We can set a goal. That space around thoughts plus the objective witnessing enables us to recognize a thought just as an event appearing on the mind ground with no more substance than the little colored dots on a movie screen. But we get fooled by the colored dots on the movie screen and we can end up crying because of those colored dots on a movie screen. So we recognize thought has appeared on the mind ground. An event has appeared on the screen of awareness, just like a sound, just like a floater moving across the field of vision which in Japan is called a flower, sky flower. Just like a snowflake on our sleeve, with no more weight than a sound, a floater, or a snowflake, our thoughts have no more weight than that. Appearing, recognized, and disappearing. This is the key to ending suffering. The ending mind-produced suffering. Meditation allows us to recognize the thoughts that are not needed now. The thoughts that are not needed now that are pulling us off on a detour from what is true. 
and then to let them go. When we're able to recognize thoughts that create suffering for ourselves and others, if we can't just rest the mind in spaciousness, in the place before thought, which we become, with practice, more and more able to do. But if we can't do that, we can substitute something in the mind. The Buddha talked about substitution. So we can chant silently in our mind, or do mantra, or do loving-kindness practice, or ask, is it true, and do the turnaround. We're so lucky because we have so many tools of practice to recognize when we're creating suffering, and then to summon something from our arsenal of practices to transform that suffering. And that applies to relieving our anxiety about both death and life. And when we can empty our mind of thought and sit for longer and longer times in stillness, both in body and in mind, then the Zen description is the bottom falls out of the black lacquer bucket. We can become mostly alert awareness and appropriate response. We can be born again into an entirely different kind of life, a life of very simple joys, simple gratitude, simple happiness, contentment with what is. But we need space and peace in our mind to do that. And that's why you have come here and sat with such determination because because something deep inside of you knows the truth. On a winter morning in 1360, Zen master Kozan Ikkyo gathered together his pupils. Kozan, who was 77, told them that upon his death, they should bury his body, perform no ceremony, and hold no services in his memory. Sitting in Zazen posture, he then wrote the following. Empty-handed, I entered the world. Barefoot, I leave it. My coming, my going, two simple happening, happenings, two simple happenings that got entangled. After he finished, Kozan gently put down his brush and died, still sitting upright. So please, you have practiced so earnestly for all of these days, continue your practice. Don't let the minds jump ahead and say, well, yeah, I did fine. Let's, we can quit now. As you've generated a lot of what we call jiriki power, samadhi power, and clarity of mind. So please continue through this afternoon, through this evening, through the night when you go to bed, as you lie down. And again tomorrow morning. Thank you.